Thank you very much. Uh, I hope I will reach that point, but nonetheless, I cannot avoid an immediate reaction. Don't you think that the least one can say is that we also get the opposite reaction of the West European left, which is that the Latin America is becoming, at least up to a point, this kind of a other place of authentic revolution. I mean, all decadent European leftists, the more they are, as is typical of British upper middle class leftists, the more they like a place somewhere out there, if the ocean is in between, it's all the better, where a really authentic revolution goes on. And for many of my friends, the myth is Latin America. Sure. Like, we talk here about the revolution, the revolution is going on there. That's okay. We wanted to talk about it, but also make it happen. Yeah. <laughs> no, my... Uh, uh, okay, okay. Now, this will be, of course, a bad taste joke, no? But uh, for me, problems with Chavez began when he saw the media reported. But I checked with my friends, he did it from Venezuela, uh, from, uh, from Colombia, but they are there half most so they are not... Uh, 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 friends of the president of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of uh, Colombia. Uh, when he prohibited Simpsons and put on a shitty family Christian melodrama. Now, I know you can play the contextual game, blah, blah, and so on and so on, but that's not important. And I will return to Chavez, unfortunately, in a brief mention today. You know that he was the first, even before the local Ayatollahs did, to congratulate Ahmadinejad for victory. No, okay, here maybe I will open a polemics today. I was appalled in today's Guardian by, I, I will try to explain why, by the text by, help me to pronounce the name, S-E-U-M-A-S, -E it is? Chavez. I knew you pronounce it not the way it should, this is the dirty Irish or Welsh tricks. Mean, Basically, the way he reads it. My point is that the way he reads it, it's exactly the way Zionists in Israel and American conservatives read it. And there is a necessity in it. Okay, but I will come this, to this at some point. I would nonetheless like to begin with one theoretical point and one obscenity. Uh, with kind of a praise of the people. First, let me tell you, I consider this a wonderful anecdote which tells a lot about how master signifier works and how democracy effectively works. Uh, it's uh, uh, one of these historical legends, this one even apparently really happened. During the crucial battle between Prussian and Austrian army, I think it was 866, that brief war where, where uh, Prussia briefly, quickly defeated uh, uh, Austria, Imperial Austrian army. The Prussian king, who was an idiot, but formally the supreme commander of the Prussian army, this was one of the last of these old-fashioned battles where uh, down in the valley thousands are slaughtering each other, but from the opposite hills, commander kings being served fresh water or whatever, drinks, observed the battle. Now, this was, I think, even the last. So, uh, on a hill, from a nearby hill, the king, Prussian king, was observing the battle. And he looked very worried. Because if you just watch the battlefield, it appeared a total confusion. 
it absolutely wasn't clear who is winning, even it looked that some Prussian troops are withdrawing. Then at his side, it was the mastermind, the true mastermind of the battle, uh, General von Moltke. Maybe some of you know he was the great Prussian strategist. He was with this detached, intellectual, ironic, cynical gaze, observing the battle and what appeared to others as a total confusion, even a retreat. When this happened, he, this is a legend, he turned to the king and told him, may I be the first to congratulate your majesty for a brilliant victory. And the king, so uh, this is the gap between master signifier and, and knowledge. The king was the master, the formal commander, totally ignorant of the meaning of what went on in the battlefield, while von Moltke embodied strategic knowledge. Although at the level of actual decisions, the victory was Moltke's, he was correct in congratulating the king on behalf on, of whom he was acting. The stupidity of the master is palpable in this gap between the confusion of the master figure and the objective symbolic fact that he already won a brilliant victory. I like this idea. You won, you are a genius, but you don't know it, you are just informed. What a brilliant victory, and so on. This is how, unfortunately, if we replace king with people, this is how democracy works. That we people are informed in the elections that we won a brilliant victory. By this, I don't mean to despise the people. On the contrary, I think that if we, the left, and here I, the, the example that I took of Chavez to avoid a misunderstanding, I don't buy the standard liberal critique like Chavez recently, and it was received by as something horrible by Western liberals. Didn't he establish a list of, I don't know, 60, 100 books to be distributed to all school children? Well, and, and they're, they're saying well, this is like totalitarian control. What control? Every state does this. We just don't notice it. Why don't replace the standard canon with another canon? If anything, uh, Chavez should be congratulated here for getting it correctly and rejecting this stupid politically correct deconstructionist resentment of canons. I am for canon. We should make our own canon. We need canons. It's total hypocrisy to, to, to think that you can teach, you can have educations just doing the subversive marginal things or whatever. Here I congratulate him. So, would you agree or not? That would be my first. This comes, I cannot get out of it, then we go to serious thing. This will be the vulgar thing. But I warn you, it will be really vulgar. Uh, uh, you know, one of the usual attitudes of us, the generate intellectuals, is to dismiss ordinary people as, if not stupid, conservative, too sensitive, when you have an avant-garde art performance, you know, all these... Uh, uh, all these uh, Chapman brothers or whatever stuff, dead corpses, uh, cows, urinating cows or whatever, uh, uh, video of your intestines and so on. As if stupid people don't get it and as if what I am rejecting here. I'm not saying we shouldn't do this. I'm just saying that I don't buy the automatic supposition that, and this is for me the bad passion of the real. This idea that if you go over the border, you do something subversive. 
you force people to confront the prejudices and so on. Now I want to report to you, this is for me the model of false avant-garde arrogance, especially false because it's perfectly in integrated into the dynamics of the market. I remember I was a couple of years ago in New York when it was this famous retrospective in the new museum of contemporary art, I think it's on the other side in Brooklyn, Andrew Serrano works 83-93. You remember maybe the famous photograph, Peace Christ, Peace like urine, Christ like Jesus, which depicts a crucifix immersed in urine. It became an exhibit even in the congressional debate, all this populist stuff about whether the, some US state agency should support artists such a Serrano, who got a grant from the state, whose work scorns the standards of common decency, uh, should be, you know, all this populist stuff, should be spent <coughs> taxpayers' money on it, and so on and so on. Predictably, of course, all leftist liberals exploded at this conservative <coughs> attack. Typical of the defense of Serrano was Michael Benson's note in New York Times. I will quote it. Just a couple of lines, don't be worried. Like Robert Maplethorpe, <coughs> incidentally, to give you another example, I'm totally opposed to Maplethorpe. I think there is one rather tragic fact. And many of my friends in New York who really know, they're my subjects supposed to know, I trust them, told me that everybody knows this, that he is simply not a very good photographer. It's as simple as that. And he tries to mask this with this whatever, one guy sticking his finger into the penis of another guy, all this extreme sex stuff. So, like Robert Maplethorpe, Mr. Serrano struggles against inhibitions about the human body. Incidentally, this is wonderful, you know. Whatever I do, I sit here, if you are disgusted, I can say, ah, but don't you see, I struggle against the... Let me go on. The use of bodily fluids is not intended to arouse disgust, this is also wonderful. You do a provocation, of course, spontaneously, I'm disgusted. You missed the point. <laughs> but to challenge the notion of disgust where the human body is concerned. It is possible to see Mr. Serrano's use of bodily fluids as pure, as pure provocation. Of course, meaning if you are stupid. But you can also believe that Mr. Serrano views them, bodily fluids, as a form of purification. The fluids make us look at the images harder and consider basic religious doctrine about matter and spirit. I love this. In this way, you can justify torture. I torture you. It's not about pain. It's testing the, the limit of pain. I want to... Ref okay. Now I will make... Now comes the vulgarity. It's not yet this. A simple experiment. Because the problem with this defense, I claim, is that it works too well. It covers everything. Let us say, Warren, blinking sign, vulgarity, that I were to publish a video clip on YouTube, YouTube depicting in detail how I shit, how the anal hole gradually gets wider, the excremental sausage falls out, <laughs> while also showing the stupidly satisfied, relaxed expression of my face when the shit falls out. Then you would say, bruh, disgusting. Ah, then I would hire a critic who wrote the following. Mr. Zizek, like Robert Maplethorpe, Mr. Zizek struggles against inhibitions about the human body. 
his use of bodily excrement is not intended to arouse disgust, but to challenge the notion of disgust where the human body is concerned. It is possible to see Mr. Zizek's use of bodily excrement as pure provocation. But you can also believe that Mr. Zizek views them as a form of purification. The body gets purified by ejecting excrements. The excrements make us look at the images harder and consider basic religious doctrine about matter and spirit. I think it perfectly works. And that's the problem for me. But you see, what's my problem? I don't even question if this works or not. I claim that even if such provocations work, and they can, they are just that. They are what is called, I think, I'm not good, I'm a primitive Balkan barbarian, you know, ethnic cleansing rates, but I think the word is hapax, this one and only example of a genus, something that can happen only once. Like, even, let's take something from higher, you know, uh, like Malevich, that black square on, or the other way around, I always forget, on white uh, surface. It works only once, you cannot go on. So, uh, but my, my problem here is uh, a more radical one. My problem here is that uh, I don't think that, how should I put it, truth lies in the extreme, in the sense of if you present me with a certain extreme reaction, that in order to be authentic, first to put it, I should go to the extreme. Like, in other words, and being someone who unfortunately is old enough to experience the so-called hippie sexual revolution, I know this was predominant. Like, when I was young, if you didn't have sex with some animal, you were considered you didn't really do it. You, like, you know, you withdrew, you didn't go. Going to the end was the idea, as if there is something authentic in it. I don't accept that. Here I'm almost on the side of uh, ordinary people. Now, you will say the problem with people is populism. Yes, I agree. For reasons into which I will not go now, enough was written in this ferocious polemics, uh, I still don't agree with Ernesto Laclau. I'm more and more convinced that that populism should be rejected. Now you will say, but nonetheless, you speak about self-organization of the people and so on and so on. Well, as I tried to prove, for me to get from here to populism, something more is needed. And to cut a long story short, this is where I see a problem with otherwise beautifully, theoretically developed Ernesto Laclau's uh, uh, line of thought in his The Populist Reason. Namely, you remember how at some point, if you read the book, he claims he even counts figures like Yugoslav Tito and Mao Zedong as populists. I simply trust my, how should I call it, spontaneous intuitive notion that if they are populists, then the notion is misused. I claim that it's a crucial part of populism, to put it in Ernesto's ter own terms, to mystify displace the antagonism. Now, his reaction will be, but all antagonisms are misplaced, there is no authentic antagonism, and so on and so on. No, I think still we can do it, not in any substantial sense, like instead of class struggle, I don't know what struggle, not in this sense, but uh, the uh, antagonism is in populism, as I try to develop, 
in my uh, 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 in defense of lost causes, I think, is mystified in in a formal way, in the sense that in order to be a populist, to put it in Ernesto's own terms, for populists, the people does exist, and it's threatened from outside. That's for me the zero level of populism. You don't, you never accept, to put it in old-fashioned Marxist term, that there is a radical antagonism which, which is constitutive of community. The minimum of populism is there is a proper order, often even a good old order, and then some external intruder, it can be Jews, it can be American imperialism, whatever, is the cause of the ruin. The cause comes from the outside, destroying the organic order. Which is why, to put it in another way, populism is always sustained, I claim, by some kind of frustrated despair, by a cry, I do not know what is going on, I just have enough of it, I cannot go on, it must stop. An impatient outburst, a refusal to patiently understand, the exasperation at the complexity, and the ensuing conviction that there must be somebody responsible for all the mess, which is why an agent who is behind and explains it all is needed. Indeed, it is, I think, in this refusal to know that resides the properly fetishist dimension of populism. Although, at a purely formal level, fetish involves a gesture of transference onto the object fetish, it functions as an exact inversion of the standard formula of transference with the subject supposed to know, who is, again, supposed to know. Here, what fetish gives body to is precisely my disavowal of knowledge, my refusal to subjectively assume what I know. So, you see my point. Apropos of populism, I don't think people are stupid. I think people with a minimum of will voluntarily, freely choose stupidity. There is always behind populism a minimum of I don't want to know, even if it's not acknowledged, even if it remains implicit, or to put it now in Nietzschean terms, which are here, I think, fully appropriate, populism is a reactive strategy, not active position. Now, this refusal to know confronts us with the deadlock of the, our, as we put it, society of choice. There are multiple ideological investments in the topic of choice at work today. As you probably know, brain scientists point out that the freedom of choice is an illusion. We experience ourselves as free simply when we are able to act the way our organism determines us, with no external obstacles thwarting our propensities. As you probably know, this is the soft cognitivist Daniel Dennett redefinition of freedom. He doesn't deny freedom, he just says freedom is not what you think, that you can in a purely contingent way do this or that. Freedom simply means you are still determined by, determined by your own immanent nature no, when no obstacles prevent you to realize what you spontaneously want. Uh, here, so this is one topic, one period of the topic of freedom of choice. And I don't know if I really told you this, but 
Do you know how much further now went the sciences argumentation? It's quite fascinating against the freedom of the will. We all know that old story of Benjamin Libet, the famous two-thirds of a second, how he wrote. He can measure your, through some uh, 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 neuronal, uh, uh, whatever, wave activity, how he can tell already half a second before you make a totally arbitrary decision that the decision was made. So it's supposed to be a kind of a material proof that half a second before you freely decide, your body already knows. A proof for some people that even when we make a totally arbitrary free decision, we are not really free. Our mind just becomes aware of what our brain already decided. Now, Benjamin, Benjamin Libet, as we all know, is a much more interesting guy. He defends human freedom. He just thinks in a very nice Hegelian way that the zero level of freedom is not uh, to choose, but to, in a very Hegelian way, the negativity, to block. He claims that in that half of a second, you can nonetheless block, say no to your decision. And that is freedom. It's a very nice theory. But unfortunately, I will just tell you the paradox. I don't know how to answer it. I read somewhere that now they repeated the experiment in a much more fatal way. They gave to a group of people some test, mathematical, whatever, logical, where on average you need some 20 minutes, 20 to 40 minutes to solve it. And uh, the point is that uh, the people who are doing it were asked to signal the moment they got the solution. Usually it took them 20 minutes. All these people were wired so that it was possible to follow their, their brainwaves, whatever. Okay, with practically 100% accuracy, if one is to believe the reports, from reading properly the brainwaves, scientists were able to say 10 minutes before you become aware that you have the solution, if you have a solution or not. So, I mean, you know what I mean? In other words, even when you actively think and then all of a sudden you have this, uh, the light, the bulb go, going on, it really happens 10 minutes earlier. So, where is the freedom of thought? Okay, this is one problem. Then, liberal economists emphasize freedom of choice as the key ingredient of market economy. By buying things, we are, in a way, continuously voting with our money. Then, deeper existential thinkers like to deploy variations on the theme of the authentic existential choice, where the very core of our being is at stake, a choice which involves a full existential engagement, as opposed to the superficial choices of this or that commodity. In the Marxist version of this theme, the multiplicity of choices the market bombards us with obfuscates the absence of real radical choices concerning the fundamental structure of our society. That's the standard Marxist criticism. You can choose Coke or Pepsi and so on, you cannot make a more radical choice. There is, however, a feature which is, I think, all too often missing in this series. The injunction to choose when we lack even the basic cognitive coordinates to make a choice. As Leonardo Padura, interesting guy, incidental, you get his novels, so-called Havana Tetralogy, Blue Red, and so on. He's a Cuban detective author, 
and he is so radically critical, depicting all the poverty, corruption in today's Cuba, that I automatically assumed, oh, he must live in some nice villa in the suburb of, of Miami or what. No, he still is there. He wrote in one of his novels, it is horrific not to know the past and yet be able to impact on the future. So being compelled to make decisions in a situation which remains opaque, this is our basic condition. In the standard situation of the first choice, a situation in which I am free to choose on condition that I make the right choice, so that the only thing left for me to do is the empty gesture of pretending to accomplish freely what the expert knowledge imposed me, this is the standard situation. But on the contrary, what if the choice really is free and is for this very reason experienced as even more frustrating? We thus find ourselves constantly in the position of having to decide about matters which will fundamentally affect our lives, but without a proper foundation in knowledge. To quote, otherwise I don't agree with his general view, but sometimes he makes good formulations, John Gray, in this is, I think, from his straw dogs, the quote, we have been thrown into a time in which everything is provisional. New technologies alter our lives daily. The traditions of the past cannot be retrieved. At the same time, we have little idea of what the future will bring. We are forced to live as if we were free. End of quote. So this pressure to choose involves not only the ignorance about the object of choice, we are bombarded by calls to choose without being qualified to make the appropriate choice. But even more radically, the subjective impossibility to answer the question of desire. When Lacan defines the object of desire as lost, his point is not simply that we never know what we desire and are condemned to the eternal search for the true object, which is the void of desire as such, and so on. Lacan's point is a much more radical one. The lost object is ultimately the subject itself, subject as an object, which means that the question of desire, its original enigma, is not primarily what do I want, but what do others want from me? What an object do they see in me? Which is why, apropos of the hysterical question, why am I that name? Why am I what you say that I am, mother, teacher, whatever? Lacan points out that the subject as such is hysterical. He, Lacan defines the subject as that which is not an object. The point being that the impossibility to identify yourself as an object, to know what you are for the others, is constitutive of the subject. In this way, Lacan generates the entire diversity of pathological subjective positions reading this diversity as the diversity of the answers to the hysterical question. The hysteric and the obsessional enact two modalities of the question. The psychotic knows itself as the object of the other's enjoyment, while the pervert posits itself as the instrument of the other's enjoyment, and so on and so on. This is why I claim there is a terrorist dimension in the pressure to choose. This terror resonates, for me at least, even in the most innocent inquiry, for example, when one reserves a hotel room, soft or hard pillows, double bed, twin beds, and so on. Beneath this simple questioning is a much more radical probing. Tell me who you are. What kind of an object do you want to be? What would fill in the gap of your desire? This is why I think 
the Foucauldian, referring to Michel Foucault, anti-essentialist apprehension about fixed identities, the incessant urge to practice the care of the self, to continuously reinvent, recreate oneself, finds a strange echo in the dynamics of postmodern capitalism. It was, of course, already the good old existentialism which claimed that a man is what it makes out of itself. And existentialism linked this radical freedom to existential anxiety. But for existentialism, the anxiety of experiencing one's freedom, the lack of one's substantial determination, was the authentic moment when the subject sees its integration into the fixity of the given ideological universe shattered. What existentialism wasn't able to envisage is what Adorno tried to encapsulate with the title of his attack on Heidegger, Jargon of Authenticity. How, no longer repressing it, the hegemonic ideology directly mobilizes the lack of fixed identity to sustain the endless process of consumerist self-recreation. So again, this is to go to this eternal, already boring debates with Judith Butler and so on. <coughs> this is where I think this anti-essentialist oppression, you know, we shouldn't be fixed to a certain identity, you should recreate yourself and so on and so on. It's not the, the, the question is not that I don't agree with it, but I think that precisely this eternally dynamic, nomadic self-questioning, which always sustains this ambiguous anxiety. Are you ready to admit you are this? This, this is the level at which consumerism makes you guilty. Not in the simple sense of you never get the full enjoyment you want from the commodity, but you are always supposed to tell, to freely choose what you really want. But of course, you never can. Consumerism, in a way, always makes you look non-authentic. Non uh, and, okay, against this background of the difficulty of choice, populism, and so on, I want now to approach a little bit the question of democracy. But you, Alain Badiou, proposed a distinction between two types, or rather, levels of corruption in democracy. The de facto empirical corruption and the corruption which pertains to the very form of democracy, which is the reduction of politics to the negotiation of private interests. This gap becomes visible in the rare cases of an honest democratic politician who, while fighting empirical corruption, nonetheless sustains the formal space of corruption. In Walter Benjamin's terms of the distinction between constituted and constituent violence, one could say that we are dealing here with the distinction between the constituted corruption, empirical cases of breaking the laws, and the constitutive, or rather constituent corruption, of the very democratic <coughs> form of government. A quote from Badius Sarkozy book. If democracy is a representation, it first of all represents the general system which sustains its form. In other words, the electoral democracy is only representative insofar as it is first the consensual representation of capitalism, which is today renamed market economy. Such is its, is its corruption in principle. 
End of quote. I think that one should take these lines in the strictest transcendental sense. At the empirical level, of course, the multi-party liberal democracy represents mirrors, registers, measures, the quantitative dispersal of different opinions of the people, what they think about the proposed program of the parties, what they think about the candidates, and so on. However, prior to this empirical level, and in a much more radical sense, the multi-party democracy represents, instantiates, a certain vision of society, <coughs> politics, and the role of the individual in it. Multi-party liberal democracy represents a very precise vision of social life, in which politics is organized in parties, which compete through elections to exert control over the state legislative and executive apparatus, and so on and so on. <coughs> One should always be aware that this transcendental frame of democracy is never neutral. It privileges certain values and practices. This non-neutrality becomes palpable in the moments of crisis or indifference, when we experience the inability of the democratic system to register what people effectively want or think. This inability is signaled by anomalous phenomena, like, I remember, the, the UK here, UK elections of 2005. In spite of the growing personal unpopularity of Tony Blair, he was, I remember, regularly voted the most unpopular person in the UK. There was no way for this discontent with Blair to find a politically effective expression. Something was obviously very wrong here. It was not that people did not know what they wanted, but rather that cynical resignation prevented them to act upon it, so that the result was the weird gap between what people thought and how they acted, voted. It was already Plato who, in his critique of democracy, was fully aware of this second corruption. And this critique is also discernible in the Jacobin, Robespierre and his colleagues, privileging of virtue. In democracy, in the sense of representation of and the negotiation between the plurality of private interests, there is no place for virtue. There is no reason, nonetheless, what conclusion do I draw from this, to be very clear now? There is, here I even slightly distinguish myself from Badiou, with whom you really find some kind of a animosity to voting democratic elections, as if there is something non-authentic, a priori false about it. No, I think there is no reason to despise democratic elections. The point is only to insist that they are not in themselves, a priori, an indication of truth. As a rule, they tend to reflect the predominant doxa, determined by the hegemonic ideology. Let me take an example which surely is not problematic, so you will not accuse me of some hidden totalitarian agenda. France in, France in 1940, even Jacques Duclos, at that point the second man of the French Communist Party, admitted in a private conversation that if at that point free elections were to be held in France, Marshal Pétain would have won with his estimation, not mine, 90% of the votes. When De Gaulle, in his, and if there is a democratic person, it's De Gaulle, so that you will not accuse me of quoting some crazy Stalinist claiming that he represents the true people. When De Gaulle, in his historic act, refused to acknowledge 
the capitulation of France to Germans and continued to resist, he claimed <coughs> not only, oh, my voice should also be heard if he does not speak for, for all of France. His claim was much stronger. His claim was, it is only he, even if at that point, in early 1940, he was a ridiculous minority, that it is only he and his comrades, not the Vichy regime, who speaks on behalf of the true France, on behalf of the true France as such, not only on behalf of the majority of the French. What he was saying was deeply true, even if it was democratically, not only without legitimization, but clearly opposed to the opinion of the majority of the French people. So, you see my point here. I don't despise elections. All I'm saying is what? There can be democratic elections which enact, and let's call it pathetically, event of truth. Here I go against Badiou. The elections in which, from time to time, against the skeptical, cynical inertia, the majority momentarily awakens and votes against the hegemonic ideological opinion. However, the very exceptional status of such a surprising electoral result proves that elections are not as such a medium of truth. <coughs> you know what I mean? There are authentic moments, and in a way we always know when they happen, but they are exceptional. And now I come to this provocative point. In contrast to many people from the left and from the right, and I will try briefly to reason why, now comes a more actual polemics, the only presupposition for you to understand it is that like all common idiots, me included, we read daily newspapers, I claim this is going on today in Iran. Why? And my only source is not only our friend Ali, Ali Zadeh, who, when he's not here provoking me, is selling himself to the media as Iranian specialist, <laughs> no? Uh, but I, I have other KGB agent spies in Iraq. I, uh, why? First, let's look at it. I love this kind of event. What happened? I quote already in some of my old books this wonderful mystical, spiritual, and I use here the term in a very naive way, not in any ironic way, moment when, you know, this my old boring metaphors of, of, you know, the cat walking along the precipice, it doesn't fall down till it notices. When Earth, when Earth, even if some oppressive power doesn't yet lose power, those in power, at some point, in some kind of a psychological break, Everybody knows it's over. Again, I advise you to read a wonderful book, uh, uh, Richard Kapuczynski, he is recently deceased, the great Polish journalist, The Shark of Sharks, where he describes, he does something which is, of course, probably a fake, but I think there is a truth in this fake. He tries to isolate this moment, and he, and he claims he found it. Some three, four months before Shah empirically left the country, there were, there were in some suburb of Tehran, some demonstrations, people gathered on an intersection, a policeman approached them and started to shout at them, disperse, beat it, and so on, and a guy simply looked at him and did nothing. The policeman repeated the shouting, the guy did nothing, the embarrassed policeman turned around and walked away. The mystery was that in a couple of hours, 
the whole Tehran knew about it. And it was this kind of, uh, how should I put it, mystical reversal. Although battles were going on, people were dying, but from that point, everyone, those in power, those out of power, knew the game is basically over. And this is for me the most interesting moment. This time in between, when those in power are, or, are already dead, like the cat, they just have to be reminded, look down, there is nothing, oh yes, and you fall down. <laughs> and again, I would love to, but I don't have enough data to write maybe a history of uh, decomposition of socialism in Eastern Europe in these terms. Like, when, before communists have actually lost power, when did it really, when did people know it is over? The third thing that I'm discovering is that it was pretty late. We in ex-Yugoslavia, we were even more privileged. With us, retroactively, it was already in the early 80s. The communists in power did some things which like, were so out of touch with normal hardline communism that we all love. But, uh, uh, that we, but for example, I was told, uh, I spoke with a friend from uh, the Czech Republic recently, and I asked him, and he told me that it's only two, three months before, you remember, when uh, uh, German tourists, East German, were massively taking train to Hungary because Hungary opened borders and left them to leave to Austria. This was like, my God, what's going on? Some East Germans told me it was also a year before already when East, because it was Gorbachev, Glasnost, and you know, all this boring Soviet propaganda, their own readers digest, it was called Sputnik, I think, with the best from Soviet press. It was too much, so East German communist government prohibited Sputnik in 88. And people say, my God, if our government is prohibiting Soviet publications, what's going on? Okay, so my point is that uh, something similar, my friends are telling me, is did happen not even the first but the second night after elections. All of a sudden, to put it in pathetic terms, people decided, realized, you know, it's this mystical act of, it's like falling in love. You fall in love so that you don't decide to fall in love. You discover that you are already in love. People discover that they are not afraid. You can be beaten by police, whatever, but they go in hundreds of thousands and also, uh, what I like is this, I was told that the, 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 the way it functions is pretty terrifying in a good sense of this sublime power of the people, that much more threatening that, than shouting is the silence. Literally hundreds of thousands, not just silently walking along the streets. And then what they do, I was told it's almost a ritual. They go home, climb the roofs of their houses and cry Allah Akbar, Akbar, God is great. And that's a crucial data. Why? Okay, first we have this. Something changed, people no longer fear. This Allah Akbar combined with another thing which you get, the green color. Green is Islam. This is, I think, what incredibly how many Western majority commentators I'm reading all the they almost systematically miss it. Or if they take it into account, they take it as a kind of a secondary manipulation. Now comes my first big 
news. If you are idiot, this is news for you, otherwise not. This uh, Musavi people and so on, this is not the Western, so-called Western, pro-Western liberals, you know. The way the media present to us Iran is there are two basic groups. The poor, primitive, farmer, Islamist majority, manipulated by clerics, revolutionary guard, Ahmadinejad, and this pro-Western, upper-middle class, secular, educated, whatever, who just want to get back to a little more democratic form of what Iran was after Shah. Uh, it's another name, I forgot his guy, uh, his name, maybe you know who it is, not Musavi, but Ker something like, I have not seen association with Angel, it's Kerub, it's Kerubi, wherever this, the other so-called reformist candidate, he is this, I say this with all viciousness, he is the Habermas Rorty candidate. <laughs> he is the, the Western candidate who wanted to play some stupid identity politics, you know, we have women, we have Kurds, we have gays, all oppressed, come, your identity will be recognized. What Musavi is doing is something totally different, which is disgusting how it, it, it is. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but from the majority of media it disappeared. His motto is not simply anti-freedom. His motto is return to the origins, repeat the 79 revolution. And he has all the authority here. Musavi was, he practically, he is a wonderful person, I was told. He has many wonderful qualities. Okay, I cannot resist it. His main quality is here, it's me. That's another story. No? He even was supposed to organize two years ago a visit by me to Iran, but then another guy was organizing visit and a week before leaving, I was told there is a slight problem, one of the organizers is arrested. You can come later or whatever. I like this idea of a he has all the authority of Khomeini behind him. You know that the same Musavi, he's not some kind of idiotic, uh, idiotic, inefficient arch architect. He's architect by profession. So even we have a link with my Tuesday's talk. No. Uh, uh, he, he, do you know that during the entire Iran-Iraq war, he was the prime minister. He organized economy so that it functioned. So again, this guy is not an idiot. Uh, uh, what is crucial again is that his idea is back to 79 roots, creative, he all the time, his slogan is, I am nothing, it's the people, creative invention of the people, people will organize and so on and so on. It's incredible. It's, I think if we still need it, I feel personally, narcissistically justified when in my defense of lost causes, I, with all ironic criticism of Foucault, I nonetheless basically accepted the line that the 79 Khomeini revolution wasn't simply a right-wing populist fundamentalist uprising. That there was, for the first year or two, something authentic going on. And this is what these guys are doing. They try to repeat that against later recuperation. And on the contrary, it's the tactic of Ahmadinejad to push them towards Rafsanjani. Rafsanjani, ex-president, is the embodiment of this, how to put it, the, the new, new Ayatollah wealth, how to put it, no? Uh, so, so, again, this is the first absolutely crucial thing. What these uh, recent events demonstrate is that the whole mapping, 
which opposed the, uh, the, this uh, stupid, bribed by Islamist, work primitive, fundamentalist, working class, like to put it in geographic terms, the south of Tehran versus the upper middle class, secular, westernized north part. It's proven wrong. Here we have a true, not Tony Blair, third way. Something happened, a great rebellion against the regime, but on behalf of the emancipatory dimension of Islam itself. And one way of Western liberals to deal with it is to claim, oh, it's just a mask. They are really Western clerics exploiting because of the popularity Islam. Incidentally, again, they are claiming exactly the same as Ahmadinejad and his guys are claiming. I feel deeply justified because it is a proof here that there can, can effectively still be an emancipatory dimension in Islam that Islam is not only in its political form, either this soft Turkish pro-market Islamism or so-called Islamic fundamentalism. You know, even if Western liberals praise Islam, it's always some kind of a, uh, you know, 10th, 11th century, that great era or whatever. No, we don't have to look thousand years back. It's today happening, the emancipatory dimension of Islam. And again, uh, uh, that's the crucial thing to note. This movement now is th those liberals even people uh, around Hatami have a very ambiguous attitude towards it something new happened there it's not the gilded spoiled middle class youth and so on and poor workers behind uh, Ahmadinejad it's absolutely not true it is a genuine emancipatory event which precisely totally blurs this official line liberals versus fundamentalists. Uh, which is why, if one takes him seriously, Obama was totally wrong when he said, in a very strange statement yesterday, I think, that the difference between the two, Musavi and Ahmadinejad, is negligible. That they are both two figures of the evil, both pursuing the same program. Maybe, may, but probably it's too optimist reading. What maybe happened, I suspect, is that, I'm not sure, that maybe he or some of his advisors are wise enough to know that if he were to openly support Musavi, this would be used as the proof, you know, for the hardliners that it's really manipulated by the Americans and so on and so on. But what's more important is that, I want to make another uh, critique of uh, Obama here. You remember his, it is so celebrated, Cairo speech, stretching out the hand, the hand towards Islam. I think it's one of the most disgusting, stupid speeches. Instead of politics, it talks about the dialogue of culture. It's a clear example of this, uh, of this tolerant culturalization. My God, what goes on today in the world? We don't need this kind of a transcultural peace. We need political struggle here, political struggle there. Again, there is no place in the mapping of the Cairo speech for what is going on today there. Now I come to the next point. Uh, who there is more and more popular another theory, which I think my Iranian friends convinced me can be clearly and empirically uh, falsified. This idea that nonetheless they may be cheating a little bit, but they couldn't have cheated so much. That is the day that nonetheless Ahmadinejad is more popular because with all his populism, blah, blah, he genuinely cares for the poor. He is basically 
a kind of a populist socialist distributing money, raising lowest salaries and so on. Why? The people behind Musavi are this upper middle class, pro-Western for market reforms and so on and so on. So this position is advocated so that nonetheless Ahmadinejad effectively won. It's interesting who advocates this position. On the one hand, my beloved Fox News in the United States <laughs> and Israeli Zionist media, because their idea is to prove, you see, it's not just a matter of, of election, it's not only Ahmadinejad, the people of Iran as such are anti-Semitic anti and so on and so on, this hard line, and some of the left. Let me just read you from today's, uh, uh, from today's Guardian some lines. Uh, Western media focus so lovingly on Tehran's gilded youth. Again, ridiculous mistreatment. I mean, if you look at the, precisely at the media, it's not the gilded youth which is demonstrating. You see almost every woman is, every at least second woman is with Chador or whatever. Gilded youth and for whom Ahmadinejad is nothing but a Holocaust denying fanatic. The other Ahmadinejad, who is seen to stand up for the country's independence, expose elite corruption on TV, and use Iran's oil wealth to boost the incomes of the poor majority, is largely invisible abroad. While Musavi promised market reforms and privatization, more personal freedom and better relations with the West, the president increased pensions and public sector wages and handed out cheap loans. It's hardly surprising that Ahmadinejad should have a solid base among the working class. So, the conclusion? If Ahmadinejad, quote again, was in fact the winner, then there is an attempted coup going on in Tehran right now, and it is being led by Musavi and his Western-backed supporters. The US is still spending hundreds of millions of dollars in covered destabilization program against Iran, and so on and so on. So, uh, uh, the reason I, I think this is a terrifying misreading of the situation is that I think that this description of Ahmadinejad is, to put it in very naive terms, simply empirically wrong. That he really won, maybe he cheated for a million or two. The first proof is an elementary mathematical one. In the previous presidential election, the vote turnout was usually 55%, maybe 60%. This time it was 85, and it's clearly reasonable to conclude that this was the protest vote mobilized. So you can get it somehow with clear mathematics that it's not that, that it is. Because also if you look at how the electoral results were announced, it was absolute. That's what my friends from Iran were telling me. This is what they found so humiliating. It's almost... They told me this as an echo to what I was saying in my second architecture talk on this need for a proper appearance. They said those in power didn't even make it the proper appearance in cheating. They simply did ridiculous things. Like, for example, when they first announced election, they said according to half the votes counted, a certain candidate got 600. Then when all the votes were counted, the same candidate got 500. Then, for example, people protested where in Musavi's own village, according to the first results, uh, Ahmadinejad won. 
then they said, no problem, we'll add another half a million there, so that you, you know, like, it, it, and the first results were announced uh, a couple of hours after, after voting was finished. So again, it's the very, uh, but, I, but there is another thing. Uh, Ahmadinejad is not the hero of the Islamist poor. He is a genuine corrupted populist, distrusted even by the majority of Ayatollahs. Did you notice did that of the seven great Ayatollahs, only one congratulated him till now? What he has is not only repressive organs, but also a very strong new rich class. The first thing you should learn about that, I don't know how to pronounce the word revolutionary guard. You know, this is not some kind of a fundamentalist working class virtue police organization. This is the greatest mega corporation in Iran. It owns, owns, owns one-third of the country. So let's be clear here. Uh, the second thing, his whole campaign was, I mean, he's not a naive. He plays Ahmadinejad a naive. He's like, I would say, uh, I would say Iranian Berlusconi. He plays all these vulgarities, but he has an extremely effective PR, which instructs him well how to do all this, uh, all this clownish, all this clownish stuff, and so on and so on. So again, uh, the paradox is that Ahmadinejad was trying to do precisely what people from the West was trying precisely to push Musavi towards either towards this secular Habermas style. Western liberals or towards Rafsanjani, the corrupted old Khomeini guard. But again, what effectively happened, I think, is something which blurred, blurred the cards. And I think it's a mega, mega, every, everyone, the, the tragedy is how he, he, those leftists who are still for Ahmadinejad, as well as the liberal West, they all mistreat the situation, again, in these terms. Western, liberal, Musavi, market reforms, and so on. I checked it up with his people. It's strictly not true. Musavi is for further nationalizations, and so on. It's strictly not true that he's some kind of a pro-Western liberal or whatever. He's an authentically engaged, engaged emancipatory the best side of uh, Islamists, the best side of, and that's what nobody wants. That's what, for, you know, it often happens how opponents for different reasons have the same desire. Now it's, again, in the, in the interest of everyone to see the struggle. Uh, nobody wants to recognize the emergence of authentically emancipatory democratic, why not, I'm proud to use the word here, uh, uh, Islam. Islam. It disturbs everyone. It disturbs Everybody is disturbs Islamists, fundamentalists, and it disturbs Western liberals. Because again, you remember how the media were portraying Islam. It's a tremendous civil society, but it's this secularized upper middle class against the background of the sea of these primitive workers, primitive poor <coughs> and so on, or farmers, whatever. First misunderstanding what farmers, I mean. Iran is a normal civilized country, 70% cities. Point two, again, this is what, you see how things happen, my God. People, precisely these poor, allegedly fundamentalist people aroused, and nobody wants to see. 
they read it again, either as a kind of a liberal revolt if you are against it, you say, supported by the United States, and, and so on and so on. And this is, I think, the most, the saddest thing. This is where an event is misrecognized. This is Western cynicism at its worst. My reproach to this text is the, what a deep distrust in Iranian people it has. A miracle happened. Precisely these poor people aroused. They saw through this cheap populism and so on. The, again, the motto is repeat the 79th revolution. And what basically we hear even from the leftists is no. I mean, the message is of this kind of support for, for, for Ahmadinejad is a very sad one. It is, of course, they wouldn't put it in these terms, but it's basically, wait, wait, wait. These people are primitive. You can only deal with them in this authoritarian, populist way. These people are not mature for secular or more emancipatory democracy. The only way you can mobilize them is in a, funda is in a fundamentalist way. And I think this is also, it's especially important to emphasize Iran here, because I think this is the best thing that should have happened compared to American liberation of Iraq. Here we have it as in a mirror image. Iraq, you have military intervention, which, okay, maybe it will work now, but a little bit it looks. But nonetheless, one thing is clear. Iraq is now more religiously fundamentalist than it was under Saddam. One thing they did, one thing that in spite of all horrors, and I don't have any precisely as very sympathetic towards Iran, and by sympathetic I mean really sympathetic. Uh, I wrote a couple of years ago a text published here and there with a terrifying title, Give Iranians New a Chance. Do you know this, that I was even quoted once by, by Ahmadinejad as a good progressive, good, good Western philosophy, honest, no? But what I want to say is that uh, 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 I think that you see how for everything you pay the price, how we are still paying the price for one of the greatest fiascos of Western and third world non-aligned politics, <coughs> the hypocrisy of how we were reacting to Iraq-Iranian war. Nobody dared to say that it was a clear-cut case of aggression on, of Iraq on Iran. Saddam simply thought, okay, it's a confusion there, let's grab the southwestern part with all the oil. What was the reaction? Americans, as we all know, they were giving him satellite shots of Iranian guards plus the gases, the poisonous gases, to stop them, because they were afraid that if Iran wins, uh, uh, we will have Iran on, on the edge of Saudi Arabia and so on, uh, and so on, and so on. I mean, it's incredible how all of a sudden Yugoslavia, all the big non-aligned nations and the West discovered the need for peace at the precise moment when Iran started to win. All of a sudden they worried maybe Iran should stop, it's not good to progress too much. They appealed to Iran not to cross the border and go to Iraq. Well, why didn't they appeal? a little bit earlier, the other, the other way around. Uh, uh, so again, here, this is the true crime of the United States. This was my answer to, to, to Saddam Hussein trial. A strange trial where his greatest crime, in the sense of human suffering, how many people died, his attack on Iraq wasn't even among the ten 
point of the of the of the how call it, uh, accusation prosecution whatever against him why because uh, United States of course uh, were deeply were deeply involved in that so again I think that we should especially this what happens today in Iran is the best argument against United States in intervention to Iraq it's an example of how it should happen liberation not the way it does there is a deep truth in the fact that the United States intervention, even if in a totally naive liberal way, you say, why not? Okay, maybe they will bring democracy, blah, blah, blah. No, they brought more religious fundamentalism and so on. My God, do you know that in Saddam's Iraq, the position of women was arguably the best among all Arab countries. Today, in practically all, not Arab, precisely because Iranians are not Arabs, let's call them Middle East, Muslim countries, the best, the highest position of women is Iran, of course, of course. No. I mean, uh, I, had a, uh, I had a relative who worked for a Slovene business company doing deals with Iran, and he told me, okay, because of this, nonetheless, still male chauvinism, the boss in every big company or at the ministry is a man. But then he told me that this was literally the formula. Then you look around, the second, third person who really runs the show, the only one who is not an idiot is a woman. And the way to do a deal is to deal with the woman, and then the boss is like this uh, Prussian king who has to be informed that he just, <laughs> may I congratulate your majesty to, for just concluding a wonderful business deal or whatever, no. It's, uh, so, but you see, uh, so when people are telling me, uh, do I think just we should do nothing and so on, no, it is, I think, so important not to miss the moment here, here, because we have a genuine universal emancipatory moment with even communist potentials, not in the naive sense of communist goals, but nonetheless in the sense of a little bit like, like Aristide in Haiti, let's do the best we can, people are mobilized and so on, and again it's so crucial to insist on this, I know I'm sorry I'm repeating myself, but it's so crucial to insist on this, it's not western liberals who are this, this is the fundamental mystification, to read this Musavi movement as this gilded youth, pro-Western, liberal, middle classes, and so on. My God, where are then all these people of Ahmadinejad majority which supports him? Don't you know that when those in power tried to organize their own alternative demonstration, they did it the way those in power do it. Milosevic did the same, and so on. They, they uh, with free cars, free meals, they brought from all around people, and all they succeeded to do is, I think, some miserable 20,000, something like that, with all the bribery on, on their side and so on. No, something immense is happening there. I think we should look for, we should look for signs like this. Why? Because it is, again, so I'm not against democracy. There are authentic moments. Here, yes, here we should play the democratic game. We should count the votes, vo votes and so on. It is this authentic potential of democracy which is, I think, losing ground more and more today with the rise of so-called authoritarian capitalism. Of course, we have here, let's call it, uh, 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 multicultural differences in Russia, we have capitalism with Russian values, Putin, brutal display of power, and so on, and so on. Let me tell you a nice data. When I visited Russia a year and a half ago, I didn't know who invited me. 
It was Gleb Pavlovsky. I didn't know who he is. Now I learned he's the PR guy from Putin. He invited me, he tried to get but you and so on, because he wanted to give some kind of an intellectual aura to, you know, because all the dissidents are going to critical guys, so now also we have some big names from the West. And then uh, uh, I asked this guy a simple question. Uh, I noticed how the media reported from time to time Putin has a very vulgar, brutal, sexist, with dirty words, outburst. And usually it's perceived, as you see, behind, all, behind this polite mask, this is the real, brutal KGB Putin. Uh, for example, the most famous example, I was even a little bit shocked watching it on news, is, well, at some press conference in the West, I think in Italy, a Western journalist asked him, is it true something about Chechnya and so on? And you know what Putin told him? He told him, uh, maybe you should visit us in Russia, and if we, you are not yet circumcised, we have good uh, uh, surgeons to circumcise you, and maybe we will cut it a little bit more. <laughs> like, we will cut off your pores, basically, if you don't know. And then I asked this guy, Gleb Pavlovsky, like, uh, are these outbursts, is it true that you get here a glimpse of the true, no, all planned, he told me. All planned, all planned. Putin thinks that this is what Russian wants to see. A guy who pretends to be polite, cold, seduce the West, but in reality, you know, cut the balls, beat, and so on, all that, all that popular stuff. Then we have uh, even, you know, what's my, I'm still more and more critical of Obama, but the lesson of all these events, it started with Burma, sorry, politically correct, Myanmar, now, no? Well, uh, something we should, maybe it's a very hard lesson for us leftists, but something maybe we should accept that, okay, maybe it remains the big enemy United States, but how to put it? In the multicentric world that we are approaching, I put it in this, I hope you will agree, very modest way. It's not always a priori necessary that the United States are the worst guy. No? For example, if you take Burma, Myanmar, uh, I even had a fight with, uh, with some of my leftist friends in Paris. You remember when there were those big Buddhist demonstrations? Uh, my, some of my leftist friends in France tried to defend the military rulers and they told me basically, okay, it's not a democracy, but isn't this still better for the decency of the people if this military regime falls? We will have a cheap westernized democracy where there will be mass children, prostitution and so on and so on. Okay, my reply to the guy, you will not like it was a very vicious one, boss. Ah, you mean, it will be like Cuba today, no? And then he told me again, oh, you listen to Soviet propaganda, sorry, to imperialist propaganda. No, I told him, my imperialist propaganda is Havana itself, where I was five years ago, and boys, I don't know why me, uh, I'm a well-known homophobic and so on, but <laughs> boys were offered to me, like, you know, for $10, you do whatever you want with him for the whole night and so on, no? I mean, according to all statistics, there are more prostitutes now in Havana than under Batista. Okay, but that's another story. What I wanted to say is that in Myanmar, it's clear what happened. In the same way that we do, and we should, ruthlessly, criticize American neocolonialism, and I'm without mercy there. Like, for example, uh, speaking about, uh, 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 how do you call this, uh, my God, uh, when you eat people, uh, cannibalism. There is only one after the 
death of these all-glorious leaders, Idi Amin and so on, the great self-proclaimed cannibalists, there is only one half-self-proclaimed cannibalist today in Equatorial Guinea, I think, no? A kind of a local dictator who lets it be known when an opponent disappears, he lets it be known that he ate it. No? Uh, 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 under total American protection. When they drew attention, I read an interview with Condoleezza Rice under Rook, he said, no, sorry, he's an American ally, we will not criticize him, and so on and so One should be extremely brutal here. And I'm far from dismissing this idea of post-colonial exploitation as uh, false. For example, numbers about Latin America tell enough. We all talk about, uh, about how much help the West is giving and so on, but look at the data of, I think you might maybe know it better, it's around, I don't know, I think 40, 50 billions, even more. How much profit does the big, uh, the big uh, Western companies still extract from, from Latin America, not to mention Africa and so on, or all these other, you know what's for me, there are new forms of post-colonialism which are horrible. But uh, I don't think I already mentioned this to you, even if I did, it's worth repeating. It's a terrifying story. Uh, you know what's going on today silently? Again, I am here a structuralist optimist. Symptoms are everywhere, you cannot lie, everything is in the media. You just have to find it. Maybe I already mentioned it to you. It's crucial. You know what happened about half a year ago in Madagascar? A mega big Korean, South Korea, Conglomerate bought, to cut a long story short, half of the entire arable land of the island, and they will use it not even for food, mostly for industrial plants. So this is that I learned, and you know where I read this? In New York Times, but it's just a small, uh, you know, they, they don't make too much fuss out of it. But and then you learn that this is a whole tendency, that even in the countries which we associate with hunger, like in Somalia, Western companies are now buying in some part some of the stuff, in Ethiopia, in that part, all around. So what big countries are becoming afraid that, you know, in these new conditions, not enough food, raw materials. And now they even went, they don't trust local masters to do their own colonial farming. They are now directly buying it or, okay leasing it for 99 years and so on and so on and, and it's going on it's going on massively so and you know, so in spite of all this i claim we should also start to talk first a little bit about european we europeans tend to be uh, in, uh, in uh, ethiopia british companies are deep into it are buying large tracts of of course the best land and so on uh, then uh, Okay, along the same lines, let's accept it. Myanmar, Burma, is a Chinese colony economic in this sense. And that's the key to it. The military junta there survive help through China for minerals, wood, forests, and so on, cutting, you know, China in terrible need of raw materials and food. That's, that's the story. We should start talking about all this. So, if you allow me to go on a little bit, I would like to improvise a little bit on these new types of rulers in the West, uh, we have Putin, then we have Berlusconi. I think that it has 
don't laugh at me, historical meaning what goes on today in Italy. I think if we want to look to see our future politically, it's Italy. Italy, don't underestimate uh, Italy. Uh, no wonder that Putin and Berlusconi are personal friends. They are the same figure, but just as they put it in a multicultural way, you know, each to, to the characteristic own country, and so on and so on. Uh, I even remember how uh, one of the famous problems, one of the famous stupid gestures of Berlusconi was, I don't know if you remember, a year ago when Putin visited Berlusconi in uh, Rome and some Russian journalist asked him, is it true that you are divorcing your wife to marry some ice skating girl or whatever? Of course, that uh, next day, literally, that journal, not only the girl lost her job, but that journal was prohibited and so on. But coincidentally, Berlusconi, as if to defend his friend, did something as if he is holding a machine gun, like he made this gesture, which was rather tasteless, you know, because he was protecting his Russian friends. And in Russia, this is not a joke. Some 20 to 30 journalists are killed per year. <laughs> you don't joke with this. In Russia, to say you will kill a journalist, it's not a joke. <laughs> okay, so let me go on. Why is Berlusconi so interesting? The figure of Berlusconi as a human, all too human leader is here crucial. First, if our political scene is split between permissive liberal technocratism and fundamentalist populism, I think Berlusconi's great achievement is to prove that they are two sides of the same coin. He is both of the same at the same time. This is why, and this is what really depressed me when recently I went to Torino to do propaganda for my new book and to support my half-friend, not theoretically, theoretically he goes to Gulag, but okay, the one who was at communism, Gianni Vatimo, no, uh, uh, stood for elections and he was elected. He promised me that he will now, for European, that he will proclaim himself in Brussels a communist, a communist member of parliament. <laughs> it's that, uh, this is what he told me and other friends in Italy, it's that uh, how Italy is effectively developing. Here you see, it's not simply primitive, Asiatic, non-democratic, Slavic mentality. This is what I found so horrible. That in Italy we have first example in the West of slowly emerging what we still dismiss in Russia as pathology. A country which formally remains democratic. You have parties, freedom of the press, but more and more it becomes a kind of empty democracy in the sense that you know in advance who incidentally that's the beauty that Ahmadinejad officially got 65 percent which is exactly how much Berlusconi Berlusconi has now no that is to say you know but the problem is even deeper Vatimo told me that he spoke you know of course this is Italy no now I say this with loving brutal bad taste humor Italy is this corrupted country where they appear to be opponents, they are all friends. Vatimo knows Prodi, knows everyone there and so on. So he told me that all this ex-center-left, Olive Party and so on, he told me that the tragic thing is that they are all in some way morally broken, in the sense that Berlusconi is accepted as a fact. They pretend to fight him, but you talk with people privately and they all say, sorry, for a decade, two, three, 
we are stuck. But everyone, it, the cynical demoralization is such that it is as if Berlusconi took the entire field, you know, in a normal, under quotation marks, Western country. You have the tension between neutral technocratic liberalism and right-wing populism. The problem with Berlusconi is that he is both at the same. He, as it were, occupies the entire field. So again, what makes Berlusconi as a political phenomenon so interesting is the fact that he, the most powerful politician in his country, acts more and more shamelessly. He not only ignores or politically neutralizes legal investigations into his criminal activity to boost his private business interests, he is also systematically undermining the basic dignity of the head of a state. This, I think, is one of the crucial phenomenon. I mean, did you notice it? If you were, I don't, don't underestimate this, what goes in Italy, and especially, please, don't read it just that, you know, in the same racist way, oh, this, those crazy Italians, they are not here. What is he doing? Turning the whole country, uh, the government, into a, a reality show. You remember when his wife accused him, he went on TV explaining his, all this problem with uh, photos from his orgies, all that stuff, and so on and so on. The dignity of classical politics is grounded in its elevation above the play of particular interests of the civil society. The idea is politics is an affair of citoyen, a minimum of dignity elevated above corrupted, corrupted bourgeois life. And Marxists then criticize this as an alienation. Politics pretends to be above universal but really serves the interests. Well, Vatimo gave me this idea that Berlusconi got the lesson, he abolished alienation. There is no split between <laughs> citoyen and bourgeois. It's bourgeois in the sense of pre the most primitive vulgar corruption is directly in power. State power is directly exerted by a bourgeois who ruthlessly exploits it as the means to protect his economic interests who washes dirty laundry of his private marriage in the style of a vulgar reality show, and so on and so on. And I think that this is, in a way, an expression of a more uh, general phenomenon in politics. Here, let me express, but I'm not alone here. The guy who gave me this thought is uh, Fred none other than Fred Jameson. Let me express my sincere admiration, I'm not kidding, for Richard Nixon. I think that he was a crook, but admit it, and this is the lesson I got from two films, otherwise I hate Oliver Stone, he's fake and bonded. But I like his Nixon, where he precisely resisted this liberal trap of, uh, you know, portraying Nixon as just a crooked guy, and he saw some kind of almost, in the very way he assumed his fall, just to admit his corruption, a kind of a tragic fall. He was a crook but a crook who fell victim to the gap between his ideal ambitions and the reality of his acts. He thus experienced Nixon a kind of authentic, tragic downfall. You know why, incidentally, Fred uh, Jameson has a sympathy for Nixon? He told me that, that first, who was it? Not James Baker, I forgot. Charlie, not Schultz. Uh, yeah, who was Nixon's foreign minister? Something like Schultz. Sorry? No, no, McNamara was before. McNamara was Kennedy. Kissinger. 
No, 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 no. Kissinger was, uh, yeah, 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 but at the beginning or after, was it with Ford, uh, Ford President Schultz? Schultz. There were, okay, this was the moment when the United States tried to play really a balance also. This is the first time that the United States tries tried to yeah, hear a little bit the voice of uh, the voice of the Arabs also. And point two, Fred Jensen told me, you know, if you measure socialism in an extremely virgil quantified way, how much percentage of a social product goes for health, education and so on? Then I'm sorry to tell you Nixon was the closest the United States got to. Uh, got to communism. Even if you saw the new film, Frost Nixon. Sorry, I was there on Nixon's side. Frost was the way I saw it there, a kind of a cheap provo provocateur, but you can see some kind of a tragic fall in Nixon. I'm not saying he wasn't, you got my point, I'm not crazy. I'm not saying he wasn't a crook. Of course he was. But in the way he was compelled to assume he's being corrupted. There is kind of a tragic fall with Ronald Reagan and also at the same time with Carlos Menem, I noticed in Argentina. I think that Reagan and Menem are the first prefiguration of, of Berlusconi. This kind of, a, how to put it, populist leader without dignity, systematically undermining its own dignity, counting on this, uh, how to put it, where, and here I'm absolutely for the official leader, where the leader no longer strives to embody the dignity of the state, but the leader tries simply to play this kind of a, identify with the mythic image of an average citizen. Although uh, you may think that Reagan did care about his dignity, yes and no, he all the time played this game of I'm as stupid as you. So that this is why with Reagan it started, this strange phenomenon noted by John Kobczak, how after each talk, liberal press enjoyed in showing, you know, counting the mistakes he made. It only boosted his, his popularity. So, uh, again, you have with Reagan, not to mention, okay, Bush is already even too, uh, uh, too much for this. But I think that this is how Berlusconi presents itself. I don't think that all this is clownish aspect, this ridiculous uh, care for private interests, sexual scandals, and so on. I don't think this is just his private ego. This is how, this is his offer of identification to Italian people, which of course are not real Italian people, but a ridiculous cliche of Italian people. I'm like you. I'm a little bit in trouble with law. I like women. I'm cheat, a little bit corrupted, but basically I'm a good guy like you, and so on, and so on. But again, what, even if Berlusconi is a clown without dignity, perhaps we should not laugh too much at him. If you want, uh, and with this I will unfortunately end, if you want a figure for, of Berlusconi, first I tried to play, maybe you can say he's like that Kung Fu Panda, but I found <laughs> another better figure of Berlusconi's laughter. Imagine those obscene, crazy bad guys who laugh like in, in Batman or Spider-Man, like Joker. He's Joker in power. You know, it's kind of ha <laughs> crazy laughter, but the machine goes on. This is something so important, I think, as a symbolical shift, that you have the whole state machine ruthlessly functioning with the madman in power. The boss can laugh and so on and so on. 
And this is pretty depressing. The left is a very sad one. And to finish again with Iran, it's the same, even going on in Iran, I was told by my friends that it was the same tragic split in the last debate, TV debates between Ahmadinejad and Mousavi. Ahmadinejad was almost a Berlusconi. He made vulgar jokes, he showed some, you know, this quick scandal, totally ridiculous private documents, like he showed uh, 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 some obscure photocopy of a document of a wife of uh, Mousavi, who, this should please you, there is a family split, I'm on the male side, a well-known anti-feminist, he is closer to my type of thought, not me only, I'm not his first name, but he, and his wife is a Foucauldian. Cut-carrying Foucauldian. Not bad if they will be the first family, no. I can imagine later in the bed, no, shouting, no, you're Foucault, fuck microphysics of power, and so on. No, but, but I want to say that Ahmadinejad showed some diploma clinic, you see your wife enrolled in academy without proper exams, you know, this kind of a typical small, op causing small obscene scandals. The idea is that this is so sad. It's the same as in Italy. When you debate with such a guy, you are embarrassed out of dignity. And this is why, with this to conclude, I think we, if we want to be still some kind of a left, we shouldn't be afraid of taking over this basic topic of we are the, we are no longer the 68 guy or those Serrano who think if you show Christ in urine, if you swear publicly, you are doing something subversive. No, those in power are playing this game. The same thing happened in my own country. There was, uh, although the left in my country is not left, they are, okay, but some kind of, uh, with minimal decency, liberals. Something happened and it was a moment of truth of Slovene politics. Namely, there was a feminist, feminist, okay, uh, sorry, I'm a feminist politician, a woman who defended something about gay marriages and so on and so on. And then a right-wing populist politician in the parliament, it was all televised, attacked her and said, uh, maybe we should form a parliamentary inquiry, call a doctor to, he literally put in this verse, to inspect that woman between her legs and to see if her sexual organs are normal at all. Like, why is she doing such crazy things as defending gays? And there it gave to me a little bit of hope, even in liberal left, maybe. It was such a tragic moment. Then you, it was able to see the whole of Slovene parliament. And it was so clear, this cultural divide. The right half, they were simply, they took it as a good joke. They laughed. The left, it wasn't so much that they shouted and protested. They were simply embarrassed, you know, like, my God, where am I? And so on. And we should not be afraid to be defenders of this. This, in a way, opens quite many new fields for our thought. We should shamelessly even play, my God, isn't it sad that these disgusting, obscene right-wingers, each of them having mistresses and so on, they call themselves moral majority. We are the moral majority and so on. We should ruthlessly appropriate all this. So again, this is not my problem with Chavez playing this uh, protector of morality. My problem is why did he, nonetheless, he was the first to congratulate Chavez. Sorry, himself, okay. To congratulate Abadinejad 
I think that this game will not end well for him because he plays the same game also with Lukashenko and all that stuff. This worries me a little bit. Maybe I can be easily converted. Maybe there is something going on that I don't know. Okay, I will promise you something else. Since it went too long, these political improvisations, tomorrow let's do nonetheless then a little bit more of a theory. Tomorrow I will try to do really this. Let's forget apocalypse. It's nothing new. We all know we are going into shit all together. So let me do tomorrow this basic multiculturalist stuff. Thanks very much, and now still we can do two minutes of democracy.